This is the Thursday Night Podcast, your source for news, analysis, and all things Georgia State sports. Because every day is Thursday. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Thursday Night Podcast. My name is Taylor. Today we've got the whole crew joining you. We've got David, Brady, and Jordan, as well as myself. Uh, today we're going to be doing a little bit of a breakdown of some of the other Sunbelt action in week zero slash weeks one of college football action. Uh, as well as we have a few Panther pros uh, that have found new homes on uh, new professional teams. So we got you uh, plugged in about. And then we're going to give a little bit of a breakdown on some of the offense and special teams position groups. Uh, but first of all, let's get around the league a little bit and talk about what we saw this past uh, little bit on uh, Sunbelt action. Have you ever played a game and done so well you got the other coach fired after one game? South Alabama has. <laughs> South Alabama, the team that went two and ten last year. Yes, that was a fun game to watch. I'm just going to say that. Hey, it's good that South Alabama played well because it makes the Sun Belt look good. I'm not so sure about Southern Miss dropping their coach after one game, but you know, it was a nice bright spot to see somebody who is projected to finish in the cellar of the Sun Belt go out there and you know on. Pretty nationally televised broadcast go out there and, you know, win a game that they probably weren't expected to. I think the line was at like 13 and a half towards Southern Miss. So it was a definite upset. And even though it was a pretty comfortable win for Georgia State against South Alabama in the last regular season game last year, once they got Desmond Trotter in the lineup at quarterback, the offense looked more full of life. And that came again. He almost got 300 yards passing in this game against Southern Miss. And I still don't really know what to make of the West outside of Louisiana is probably the favorite and should comfortably win that division. But it's definitely voting well for the Sunbelt to have a win like this, like David said on national TV of sorts, when the spotlight's on. I mean, we're in, under no designs that the Sunbelt is going to keep being this relevant with the TV games they're getting because, well, half the leagues aren't playing as of now in the fall. So this might be the most eyeballs that Sunbelt teams get. And it might go back to normal, should go back to normal in 2021, where the Big Ten and Pac-12 get back on the national TV spots. And so I think that it's going to be... Interesting to see how the West plays out. On the flip side of USA's fortunate opening, uh, Arkansas State and Texas lost, or Texas State rather, lost to a pair of American Conference uh, foes, Memphis and SMU respectively. What did we learn about those teams that you think maybe could be telling moving forward the season from those losses for them? I didn't anticipate Texas State playing SMU that close. Um, they the, only lost, the final the, score was 31 to 24. Uh, Memphis beat Arkansas State 37 to 24. Right. Now, college football lines obviously are not everything, and especially since this is a season, you know, caveats abound. SMU came into this season or came into this game a 25 point road favorite. So 
the fact that Texas State either, you know, was really feeling it in San Marcos or SMU was a little bit rusty, I'm not entirely sure. Because if you look if you look at the stat sheet, it doesn't look necessarily that Texas State played all that well. It seems like they were a little bit fortunate in terms of, you know, some turnovers that happened. Um but at the same time though, it takes a lot for you to hold, you know, an SMU team to only 31 points. I mean, that was a team last year. I think they were averaging in the top 20% of the country, you know? So if I'm a Texas state fan, especially where Texas state is projected to finish in the Sun Belt in this year, I take that as a win, even if it wasn't an actual win. No moral victories. (laughs) I see this as an absolute win. (laughs) And then with Arkansas State, again, it was all the West teams. Apparently, we're all just going to play. They were out in front early on. And then Memphis, I think, just kind of put it together as the game went on and closed out strong. And that's the team who I think if there's anyone who going into the year you're going to say is going to challenge Louisiana in the West is going to be Arkansas State. So them playing a Memphis close isn't necessarily surprising, especially since it was a road game. Uh, But again, not a lot of clarity on the West after this, because I think the team that you would have rated least likely to win one, even though it was maybe the least impressive opponent, it still was a case of, we don't really think that much of South Alabama. So definitely eyeballs were raised and interested to see how the season plays out on that side. Speaking of Louisiana, they're actually visiting Iowa State this upcoming weekend. Do we see the chance for an upset potential there? I mean, college football, anything can happen. Line up between the white lines, see what happens. And even going a little bit deeper into just your normal college football saying, I think Louisiana is a really good football team. You know, obviously they are going to be challenging App State in the Sun Belt for probably the third straight year. Um, I don't necessarily see anybody in the West running with Louisiana and it sucks because Louisiana still gets each year they improve and app state just keeps getting better and better themselves. Um, that being said, do I see them pulling the Iowa state upset? I don't think so. I think Iowa state is, you know, kind of back to being Iowa state again. Um, you know, and they're they're for the last like five ish years, they were always huddling around the, you know, mid tier ranked team. Like they were always in the conversation for, you know, a mm, couple balls bounce this way. Maybe we can be in the big 12 championship game, but it's just not happening. Um, you know, so that's, it's not like a, you know, a coastal Carolina beating a Kansas or something like that. So, but I, I'm fairly certain that Louisiana is going to go, you know, at Iowa State and play well. They're going to play a very good 60 minutes of football. I just think Iowa State is going to be better than them. Something interesting I want to pose to you guys is now that we have basically two of the big Power Five conferences not playing football this year, there's going to be room on the AP rankings for, you know, potentially, you know, eight to 10 new teams uh, without, you know, without the Big Ten and the Pac-12 uh, taking up those spots. Do you think that any Sunbelt teams could crack the top 25 at any point this year, given that the field is a little more open? Absolutely. Definitely. Easily. App State um, and Louisiana would be my favorites for that. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, 
I think there's even more staying power than there normally is because like last year when App State was ranked, they lost to Southern the very next week and they dropped out. And I think this year, especially if a situation like that were to arise with either App State or Louisiana, they would still stay ranked even through the week if they lost to a team that ends up, you know, like Southern was right there in the conversation for Sunbelt East um, after they beat App State. So um, it obviously didn't work out for them, but I think that an app state would still stay ranked through even through that loss week. By the way, this is all super disrespectful to the leading team in the South Sunbelt right now, South Alabama Jaguars. <laughs> <laughs> Literally the only team with a win in the conference as of today. Is that like a couple of years ago when we were the only team that had played any game period point blank in division one and we won? Oh yeah. When Georgia state was the leader in all stat categories for like a period of like 18 hours. I'll tell you what, that was, that was a great the best like, 18 hours half a day. Life. <laughs> I will tend, I'll take the other side slightly and think that what's going to happen more likely is teams that would normally not even really be near the top 25 and power conferences are going to start getting votes just because coaches and the media are going to deem them better than the G five group. But I definitely think that app States at that point where they've got the name recognition and at the FBS level now, as they had at the FCS level, there's a recognition that they are good. And they're one of those teams knocking off North Carolina last year, knocking off South Carolina. Did they win that game? Yeah. Yes. They swept the Carolinas. That's right. They've got to go. They've got to go New Year's New Year's six this year. Right. And that's the other thing. Supposing your bulls happen is everything. This feels like an optimal year for them, provided they just win out. There's less games they have to win. And, you know, one of these years, the Sunbelt team is going to get ranked and stay ranked instead of getting ranked and immediately losing, usually on a Thursday ESPNU game. Well, there's there's what, 77, 78 active teams in Division one FBS this year. I think I could be wrong, but I don't think it's a stretch to say that you could have at least one Sunbelt team end the season in the top 25, even if everything goes to hell in a handbasket in Southern beats App State when they're on the cusp of ranked greatness for like three straight weeks or something, because that that's always what happens, right? Event until it does fault. I mean, yes, but also. <laughs> so everyone, I think, except Georgia State is in action. No, Troy is also not in action this week either. Um, so pretty full Sunbelt slate. Uh, the Texas State plays UTSA, ULM and Army play. And I guess those feel kind of like toss-upy games. The rest are either Iowa State's a likely favorite over Louisiana, even if it is a good game. Kansas State feels a likely favorite against Arkansas State. App should beat Charlotte. Um, Georgia Southern should beat Campbell. And I'd probably, I I guess we'll find out again for for real, for real, if South Alabama is is what it takes because they host Tulane, who's a decent team. So, but I would also say Tulane's probably the favorite there. And I don't really know what to make of Kansas Coastal Carolina, but that'll be an interesting game. How Coastal Carolina is this year will have a big impact on how Georgia State does in the East because I feel like they're a team that a lot of people rate. If Georgia State is not the worst team in people's rankings of the East, it's Coastal. And so if Coastal is good 
and winning games, then that's going to be a shot to Georgia State, given there's only five teams in the East. You have to imagine Kansas is going to come into that game with a big old chip on their shoulders after what happened last year. (laughs) I mean, losing to Coastal two years in a row, that has got to be like a huge blow to, I mean, the a, a program who on the outside looking in is supposed to be turning things around and losing to Coastal two years in a row is not how you do that. But that also would be pretty on brand for the way things have been going over there. Sure. We'll see. I'm going to play devil's advocate here because I love doing that. And I'm telling you that CJ Marable is going to have 250 yards on the ground. Coastal Carolina is going to win that football game. Is another Sunbelt team going to get another D1 FBS uh, coach fired this, this season? <laughs> I don't first think two so ways with less that quickly. I don't know. But, I'm just I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, moving on from Sunbelt football play, we do have a little bit of Georgia State news to share with you. A couple of Panther pros making some active rosters. Uh, Penny Hart is active for Seattle and Brandon Wright, former uh, puncher kicker for Georgia State, uh, joining the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars practice squad. Um, interesting fun fact, as of recording today, uh, today is Wednesday the 9th, uh, upcoming this weekend, uh the Seattle Seahawks are visiting the Atlanta Falcons uh, and will uh, hopefully Penny might be able to get some uh, playtime. That'd be interesting to see. Yeah, I'm happy for him. He didn't have a lot of luck last preseason time. He had some hamstring injuries. And then when he got healthy for the last preseason game, as he was with the Colts, he muffed two punts when in like final week time where you have to be like showing why you should make the team. So it was really unfortunate timing and he landed with Seattle on the practice squad. And it seemed like it was at least likely he was going to stick on the practice squad for them this year. So maybe a little surprising that he ended up making the uh, 53 man roster, but I'm excited for him. Russell Wilson's a good QB. He can definitely have an impact for them if he's going to find himself open and Russell will find him. So as a Falcons fan, hopefully the big success doesn't come until the rest of the season, but I'm definitely excited for Penny to get his shot. Yeah, I mean, just yeah, looking really at their depth chart different. right now, uh, I mean, he does have a few names in front of him, uh, namely Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf. Uh, they also assigned Philip Dorsett, which uh, that's news to me. Um, but yeah, he's, he's definitely slotted in as uh, based on this depth chart I'm looking at ESPN right now as the second string, third wide receiver, you know, take that as you will. Um, but yeah, hopefully uh, things work out for Penny and he uh, f- finds a spot and sticks with it and uh, kind of makes a name for himself. And uh, on Brandon, I mean, it's hard for specialists in the league because there's just so few spots. Yeah. The turnover so, is just so low. So even landing on a practice squad spot for a kicker punter, and I, I assume it's going to lean a little more punter for Brandon in the NFL. But, you know, it's something. I mean, the door is open. There's an opportunity. You're still getting work in. And, you know, who knows? It It worked out for Will once he finally found a spot. So we'll see what happens with Brandon. Did he start on the Saints practice squad? He was with the Ravens, uh, which was unfortunate because Justin Tucker is one of the most untouchable <laughs> kickers. And so when that happened initially, I was like, this is really not great for Will. But I, it seems like he took the opportunity and learned from Justin Tucker um, from what he said in the past. And then he got into a spot where there wasn't a locked in incumbent kicker in New Orleans and he's made it his place. The pro bowler. I will say on the terms of uh, 
like job security for specialists, you know, kickers, punters like that, especially in the kicking game. It seems like if you're a guy that's locked in a spot that you're not going anywhere, but maybe those, you know, the bottom eight to 10 guys where, you know, you're not a hundred percent and, you know, they, the team might be looking to go somewhere else. That's a spot where, you know, they could, there's a team looking for kicking or punting could come and poach him off the, uh, you know, practice squad. Um, as I mean, just because he's on the practice squad for this Jacksonville Jaguars team now doesn't mean that he couldn't eventually find his way onto an active roster somewhere else either. Just got to stay in the league. Yep. Anything can happen. All right. We're going to move on to a little bit of a preview of our offense and special teams position groups. So I'm going to throw it to David and Brady and uh, let's uh, break it down. Yeah. So last year we did this on the website and with written pieces and just with the schedule being a little up in the air and all with football and wondering what was going to happen if, if the season was going to happen at all. Um, I think we just decided it was going to be more efficient and just do it at all in position by position breakdown on the podcast. Uh, Cause me and David are both here. And this week we're going to do the offensive position groups and the special teams. And then on next week's pod, in addition to previewing Louisiana game, we're going to do the defensive previews. So I think we're starting at the maybe most pivotal and start from the inside and move our way out and start with the Georgia state offensive line. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously last year, the main the biggest departure that Georgia state will have last year is kind of replacing Hunter um, Atkinson, who is currently a free agent. I believe he got cut by the Falcons. Yes. Um, but obviously, you know, replacing that tackle production will be very vital for Georgia state. Um, this year, um, just kind of starting with the other positions that are staying where they are. Malik Sumter will be back under center. Um, he, you know, obviously was very instrumental in solidifying the line for Georgia state last year. I can't, really say much about his contribution. can't really say enough about his contributions. You know, you have Shamarius Gilmore who was included in the preseason all Sunbelt first team. Um, he will be manning the guard position, one of the two guard positions. Um, and then I believe it's going to be Bartlett on the other side of the quarterback from Gilmore. And then <clears throat> sorry. And then, you know, last year, Georgia State had obviously Atkinson. But this year, I, I believe the tackle positions are going to be the youngest of the positions that Georgia State has. Like, what say, what do you think, Brady? Do you know of anybody who's going to specifically start? So on the it was a, sort of an open-ended question, maybe at the end of last year, like if Travis Glover, who was at right tackle last year, was going to stick where he was or replace Hunter. And it seemed pretty early on in the process. Coach Elliott was suggesting that Travis Glover is going to be at left tackle and just slide over and replace Hunter. Um, the thing that Coach Elliott from his first recruiting class has done is build up the offensive line room. It's been a priority, which perhaps shouldn't surprise anyone because he's an offensive line coach. Um, but I think also just the way he wanted to run the team, he knew that having the offensive line solidified was going to be the most important thing for how he wanted to pivot to a run first type offense as we've started to see. And so given that, I think that 
it's kind of just going to have to be a certainty that the offensive line stays as good as they were last year for the floor of the team to be where it is. Uh, we'll talk about quarterback later, but I think maybe quarterback performance affects the ceiling of where the team is. But I think the floor is set by the offensive line. And I mean, there's no indication for me that they're going to take a step back. The four of the starters are staying. It was a really good group last year. Tremarius, like you say, favorite to be an awesome belt guy hold down that left guard spot. And so it's still not set. Uh, probably get a depth chart to confirm hunches, Jonathan Bass at the other tackle spot, but it's really the same group with one new face. And so the mesh should be pretty good and they're going to be an important part of the offense's success. It just, the, the standard was set by last year's offensive line where it's like, this is, this is where you have to be. And, you know, kind of piggybacking what you said about the uh, coach Elliott. I mean, there are a ton of young offensive linemen that are going to have a lot of opportunity to learn and continue to, you know, patch holes. And I think depth on the offensive line is probably going to be one of Georgia state's strengths on the offensive side of the ball. Um, well, I, I don't want to say strengths, but I want to say one of the more sure things heading into the season. Um, there's definitely a little bit less questions there and the depth is a little bit stronger than I would say at some of the other positions on the offensive side of the ball. Maybe running back is probably the other strong one. Um, and I, I don't include tight end because I assume that Georgia state is going to be using both fairly equally like they did last year. Well, we can go ahead and pivot to tight end and I'll start out. I'll say, I think the tight end is the deepest position right now for Georgia state at either side of the ball. Cause You've got Roger Carter and Aubrey Payne who are coming back and are going to be written in Sharpie as starting a tight end. And we're going to probably see a fair few sets where both of them are on the field. Um, and then behind them, it's a bunch of underclassmen, namely Herman McRae, Amon Green, Chris Bird. But it's a lot of upside, and it's also a thing where Whereas last year you had Cameron Knight, who was the third tight end, who did a really good job blocking and he wasn't nearly the threat that the other guys were in the passing game, but did a creditable job there. Uh, the door is open for these young guys to get reps and it's not a case where. I guess this is the point where we should talk about the eligibility thing and that it's kind of up in the air because the NCAA is basically talking about eligibility. It's not really factoring in for this season, so as of now, it seems possible that either Aubrey or Roger could be back next year as we understand the rules so far. And I don't know exactly how that plays out, but assuming that they don't see the utility in staying, if they are allowed to in normal circumstances, I would be saying, you know, this is going to be a problem that we're losing two really good tight ends. If indeed they leave, but given what's behind them, it feels like the tight end groups in a really good position. And especially if they just keep adding another guy to the room every year in the recruiting classes. I mean, it feels like tight end is a place where Georgia state can really have strength. And as we saw last year, the tight ends in the receiving game and mainly in the blocking game are really important in the scheme. Coach Glenn wants to run on offense. So that's what I got to say about the tight ends. I think it's a really good group. Yeah, I mean, anytime you have like 36% of your receiving touchdowns returning in a year, that's probably a good thing. Um, I am excited to see what Aubrey can do kind of staying healthy and, you know, finishing the season. I think after he went down, Roger Carter was asked a little bit less to go downfield. 
um, and just kind of leaning a little bit more on the running game and, you know, leading a little bit more on Dan and his injury kind of prevented some otherwise kind of derailed some otherwise great seasons. Um, so obviously picking a quarterback that it's the scheme that Glenn runs will be important. I, I think you're right. I think we Georgia state does have a really solid tight end room. I think the core there, they can do everything that a tight end is asked for. Even if, you know, I don't think Aubrey is the best blocker. Well, that's fine because Roger is an incredible blocker. And I, you know, I don't think Roger is as great as a downfield threat, but you know, fine. Aubrey is a great downfield threat. So, you know, kind of mixing and matching and, you know, seeing what each guy has been able to acquire it through the off season and, you know, being able to install it in the offense will definitely be interesting and to follow as time moves on. Yeah. I just want to hop in and, and kind of point to the fact that when you saw Aubrey go down and then Roger was being given more on his plate also kind of coincided with Dan becoming much less mobile because of his injury. So it makes sense that they would have asked him to take up a lot more blocking responsibilities because Dan doesn't have that, you know, mobility in the pocket and they need more bodies to be able to extra protect their, you know, star quarterback. Um, so what do we feel maybe about the, uh, the rest of the receivers, the, the wide receiver room? Again, I mean, I think it's a, we, we know there is a solid one, two there coming back in Cornelius McCoy and Sam Pinckney and, I mean, sky's the limit for Pinckney as far as I'm concerned, as long as he's healthy. He's had injuries that have taken him out both of the seasons he's been here. And it's unfortunate because he's exactly that big target in the red zone and just downfield that he projected to be. And Cornelius has been a really reliable guy for Dan in his time here. And the thing that maybe was missing and part of it was just that the offense wasn't tailored the way we've seen Georgia state offenses in the past, where it was really wide receiver pass heavy. Um, maybe a little bit of the, the upside, the explosive plays from the passing game, but what did the coaching staff do? They went out and got three speed guys for wide receiver in this freshman class. And I think that that was an intentional thing to just try and inject a little something else. I think Devin Gentry was a, a good solid player and had some big plays, but he is graduated. So you needed to replace a guy. You've got Terrence Dixon in the slot who's coming off of an injury. So hopefully all is well there. And we saw what he was able to do in the first two games last year was definitely an important part of the offense as long as he was there. But you've got Jacob Freeman as freshman, got Robert Lewis, you've got Talik Williams and Again, with the eligibility rule, I don't know what it necessarily means as far as redshirting or if this is just a total year where anyone can play no matter what and not lose a year of eligibility. So I think that no matter what, all the freshmen would get a chance because Coach Elliott isn't going to just play vets only like it's going to be who earns starts. But I think especially given eligibility is a open question, I think we'll see a fair amount of those guys and. I think when we're going to the passing game, I think the one thing that could add to this offense is a little bit more of the big chunk plays in the passing game, because if Georgia state can gash you with just runs up the middle and good blocking, and they can also gash you with 60 yard passing plays and guys out in the open, just running past safeties, you know, that's going to be a really hard thing to stop. And it can be a thing where if you have questions about the quarterback, 
if it's guys that are just making their own plays and you're just getting it to them on like a screen on the outside and they just hit a hole and take it like you're not asking too much of the quarterback in that place either. And you're just having playmakers in space and seeing what's happening. Yeah, I think that's why I'm really excited about. I feel like I say this every year, but I'm excited about Georgia State's size. Um, you know, you've you've got I believe three or four wide receivers that are you know six three, six four. Um, you know, actually, you've got more than that. You've got Kadarius Thompson, Christian Thomas, and Pickney. Um, you've also got Mesa Wiley. And then, yeah, so, you know, all those guys are 6'3", 6'4", and sometimes that's just what you need at an outside target, regardless of speed at this level. If you can get, you know, you can drop a couple of plays and you just say, here, quarterback, just find that guy one-on-one and throw it up there, see what he can do. That's how a lot of those downfield shots kind of matriculate. So if that's the type of offense that Georgia State wants to run, that's exactly what I'm looking to see. You know, that's exactly what's going to help move the chains and help, you know, take some pressure off of a young quarterback, especially if the run game is working and you're going to have to, and defenses are creeping up to try to honor that run game. Yeah. I mean, obviously there are so many factors into what is going to make whoever is coach Elliott's pick QB one, but I think, and I wrote this in the, in what I was going to be publishing as far as the wide receiver group, um, which didn't get published because we're doing it here. I think the person who gets the rapport with the top guys with Pinkney with McCoy, I, I think that would be a tiebreaker for me just because if they feel comfortable with them and they have some chemistry there, that that's going to make the difference because last year, Sam Pinkney showed that if you throw him a jump ball, he's got a pretty decent chance of coming down with it. And especially in the army game, he was just picking apart the army cornerbacks and just Dan was just going to him felt like every every drive in the first half and he was making big plays and so and in the Furman game he had that big one in the end zone so I, I think that that is while I was talking about the uh, the potential upside of the new guys I think it is also just going to be another year of growth growth hopefully for Pickney and McCoy and they can be reliable guys for whoever becomes quarterback speaking of growth and kind of continuing the growth that started last year we've got to talk about the running backs now obviously trey is gone and dan is gone so that's a significant chunk of the production that the unit and yes i'm including dan in there as a running back sort of um that the unit had but i feel like this season you also can feel very you shouldn't have as many question marks with the running backs probably did last year. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, last year I specifically wrote in the preview, I was like, eh, it seems like it's going to be another year where Georgia state doesn't get a thousand yard rusher. And then Trey <laughs> demolished a thousand yards and then some, um, and I'm down in a place where you'd think a lot of, you'd think at this point be like, you just lost a 15 yard, 1500 yard rusher. We're in trouble, but, I think this coaching staff probably feels pretty comfortable with Destin and Seth, uh, Destin Coates and Seth Page kind of leading the room. And then they added Marcus Carroll in the recruiting class, who seems like he's sort of forcing his way into conversation. And oh, absolutely. Coach Kelly gave him a little shout out in, in his uh, media availability l- last week. Yep. And 
Dawson Hill's a guy who's never, I think, been fully healthy since he's been here, but he was a guy who came in with Seth Page and Dustin Coates as part of a sort of three-headed recruiting class of running backs. And so I think that if he's right, he's another guy who can contribute. And it's going to be about the running game for Georgia State still, no matter what the quarterback can add to add even more. We know that it's going to be a team that's looking to run the ball, pound the rock. And it's really not necessarily a worry. I mean, if the running game isn't good and the running backs aren't good, then it's kind of like with the offensive line. I mean, that's just going to be Georgia State season. But it, it feels like they're still in a good place despite losing such a dynamic guy like Trey Barnett. Because especially with the stability in the offensive line, if Georgia State's going to have to lean on their running game for the first couple of games as a quarterback gets settled, you want to still be able to put up points with the guys that you have. And, you know, now it's a point of pride. Thousand yard rusher last year. Just keep the train going. You got to get a streak. Got to get a streak to beat the streak of how many years it was without a thousand yard rusher. Now you got to keep getting thousand yard rushers every year. Easy peasy, right? Does it, does it change if there are multiple thousand yard rushers? Like, does that count as two or I, how does I, that work? I mean, it doesn't count as two like <laughs> season. It doesn't mean we have three seasons in a row where Georgia state has a thousand yard rusher, but it, I, if we're talking about Georgia state having 2000 yard rushers, then teams probably having a good year. <laughs> so i guess we just have the elephant in the room or to you i guess it's not really an elephant yeah i quarterback is the last offensive group and i don't know it just has felt for a while it's been quad brown I, we i think the biggest I mean, I don't want to make light of light. Obviously, there's a lot of bad things that happened as a result of COVID-19, and I'm not trying to make Georgia State football out to be an important, like, in the grand scheme of things. But I will say the spring practice that got lost would have been really important for all of the guys, really, in the quarterback room to have a chance to make their name and, and learn the offense and in real time get some experience. And so given that he was the starter presumably going into then and he's got his number now he's quad and he's wearing number four. So there's the the synergy there. Um, maybe that's a little less important. Um, it just, it seemed like it's just because he's been the closest to starting. He was in the depth chart last year. Number two feels like it's him. Coach Elliott probably at this point has an idea and might've told a guy, but I'm guessing he's going to keep that card as close to his vest as possible. Uh, the depth chart, no matter what he thinks of the position, I feel like I wouldn't be shocked if the depth chart comes out and we've got an or maybe like an or and another or just any number of these guys could be the starters and just leaving that indecision until kickoff. Uh, and that's just how I think that'll go as far as the, the gamesmanship of it all. But feels like it's quad. And I would just say to anyone who is basing it off of last year, uh, don't. I think that judging quad off of the half game he played being thrown in there because Dan had a knee injury at ULM. It's probably not, it's not the measure of Cornelius Brown. Yeah. I, you know, I want to temper expectations a little bit with quad. Um, I think there are, there were some mechanical things last year that, kind of concerned me but I also know that those are things that you can teach in an offseason and especially when you have an offseason where it's hey you're probably the guy next year let's go get you ready or it's not hey 
your starter just got hurt. Go do this. You know what I mean? Um, I'm sure it was a hell of a battle. I wish that COVID didn't happen. So we, I mean, we would have had an answer by now, but I wish that we got to see a little bit more of the battle in a spring game and a, you know, more open practice, if you will. Um, but I don't necessarily disagree. It probably is quad. Um, I don't know what Jamil would have to do to overtake him. Um, and I mean, and if he, if it's a situation where Jamil is just playing lights out and does overtake him, then that's great. Like it's, that's probably what you want to see because I mean, it seemed like quad was the first choice last year for the, you know, Hey, somebody get in there when they weren't trying to use Harvey. So if that's the case and it's quad, then all right, you know, you hope that he takes it and runs with the, the, the best football programs in the group of five are the programs that have those multi-year starting guys, you know, like the Zach Thomas is the Levi Lewis of the Sun Belt. Those are, you know, three and four year starters. And that's what Georgia state needs to develop the next step in sort of, you know, furthering their program. So if next Saturday is start one of 60 great starts for Cornelius Brown, then let's do it. Yeah. I think everyone listening to this and on this pod would agree that the, the next step for Georgia state is not having it be another two year cycle where bring in a Juco guy or transfer the team struggles in year one and they go to a bowl in year two. They've done that three times in a row now and going to bowl games is great, but to really be that type of program, you've got to be able to get a quarterback factory going of starting young guys and, and changing the script. And I don't know what this year holds for the quarterback position or the offense for Georgia state, but even if there's struggles, Next year, the guy is a, a sophomore instead of a senior. And so if he takes a leap like Nick Arbuckle did and Connor Manning did and Dan Ellington did in their second year and their success, that guy's still back for two more years after. So definitely excited to see the growth of the Georgia State quarterbacks over the next three to four years, see what's coming. Definitely a point of excitement. And that's the offense. So with offense sorted, I think real quickly, not going to spend nearly as much time on each position of special teams, but that almost belies the whole problem with special teams is sometimes you can overlook them. And I think that it is very possible to forget how, even if there were some weird kicks here or there, Brandon Wright was kind of a steady guy over the last two, three seasons for Georgia State, and he's not doing the kicking or the punting. Now, Georgia State answered the kicking problem. They brought in a grad student, Noel Ruiz, from NCANT. So I feel like that answer is pretty sorted. Got a grad transfer kicker. Health-wise, as long as everything's good, feels pretty safe. He's going to just be the guy for a year kicking, and you kind of kick that can down the road a year. Yeah, I think they have some intriguing options. You know, obviously, they've got some freshmen and I'm sure freshmen, so we haven't seen too much of them, but it's it's weird that we have to talk about place kicking because it has been Brandon for so long. Um, but it's one of those things where if you're overlooking them because they're doing their job, then that's a OK. Yeah, and the last time when Coach Ellie got here, there wasn't really a set guy before Brandon kind of took both positions, kicker and punter. It was kind of a. 
he worked around different guys. And I think that's probably what we'll see with punter this year until someone kind of wins the job outright. There's a few bodies in that group. And so it's just going to be probably might see a thing where two or two guys, maybe in a game, get a chance. He might do the, the positional, the situational thing where maybe someone's better rugby style. Maybe someone's a better outright kicker. And the interesting one for me, and we're, we're going to end here and talk about the defense next week is the return game, which as many Georgia day fans probably are frustrated by was sort of a non-factor this last year. There was a lot of using of the new fair catch rule to just start on the 25. But I just wonder, got the transfer Jam Williams from South Carolina, who is just Mr. Dynamic as far as everything we've seen from when he was at, in high school, recruited by an SEC school. And so I wonder if part of it for Coach Elliott has just been not necessarily thinking he can put it in the hands of someone who's going to really make an impact and that he'd rather take the sure starting on the 25 on kicks or the sure field position and not muffing on a punt. But I wonder if the difference this year is he's got a guy who came from an SEC school who he has trust in to make a difference. And it'll be interesting to watch. Um, we'll see what happens there. I think a lot of Georgia state fans would like to see a little more dynamism in the return game. Or just any. all, yeah, Or just any. <laughs> you know but i, I could understand you know punting on it no pun intended but oof i would love to see anybody just take that job and run with it please i i'm I, actually begging <laughs> david <laughs> says please um yes nicely <laughs> um i think the thing i would say is special teams were a Aside from what Will Lutz was able to do in making his name, getting the NFL under coach miles, there was a lot of bad special teams and just mistakes and some just fundamental stuff not going right. And I think that coach Elliott has righted that ship. There were some struggles in his first year, um, but then also special teams touchdowns. Samir Skillmore scored on a block field goal that he returned, fell on in the end zone for a touchdown. So that was fun. But I think that Coach Elliott has steadied the ship on special teams, but it's still not a thing where it's the difference in games and not even just talking about return game, but just in general, it hasn't felt like a thing where it's a plus. And I think you look at teams, Georgia Southern's team in the conference, loath as we might be to say it on a Georgia State podcast, they have made some difference in the special teams. And maybe it's partly Chad Lunsford had coached special teams in the past. And so he was able to bring something, but it's kind of not starters. It comes on second, third string guys, mostly just putting in the effort and making differences. But that's where the special teams can really be a thing. I mean, how much do you see with like the, the Alabamas and those types of schools where they've got impact guys on special teams that are blocking punts or who are taking kicks back or you know, forcing fumbles on returns? You know what? That's the part of the game where it being just kind of so-so is acceptable as the other sides of the ball are doing well, but it's a, it's a place where you can really get a leg up and it can sometimes be the difference between a win and loss. All right, before we wrap it up here, I want to pivot over and discuss a proposition put forward from the ACC about uh, the potential of playing an NCAA tournament in the 2020, 2021 season. Basically the idea would be that everybody in division one would get just like a carte blanche invite to a tournament with potentially up to 300 people. What do we think about that in general? And what do we see that playing into Georgia state's chances at making, you know, the postseason this year? 
I, for one, welcome a 355-team tournament, and I pity the people who run the March Madness and the uh, Bracket Buster whatever people uh, Twitter accounts for trying to figure out how in the hell that would work. Yes, as somebody that works for the Turner doing March Madness, the idea of facilitating a 300 you know plus team tournament sounds like a nightmare. Uh, so, uh, just speaking personally, I don't, I don't necessarily see how we could get a tournament to happen without some sort of coordinated effort between basically every team involved to bubble themselves. I mean, the NBA has shown that if you, if you do take the precautions and you throw enough money and logistics, you know, at the issue, it can be solved, but on on a, a college level, I'm just not sure I buy that something like this is log- logistically possible. And then you ratchet it up by just inviting everybody and their mom that you know that wants to send a team. <laughs> I just I don't I don't necessarily buy this, but I'm interesting to hear your guys' takes on it. It's not possible. It, <laughs> it's just not possible. It, it's just so cynical. It's 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 going to be a lightened schedule, and so conference schedule is going to be weighted a little more heavily. And so the teams that usually have about a 500 record and are on the bubble from the power conferences. Oh, yes. Indiana in, in this event are going to probably be left behind and have like a so like a below average record to bad record. And so this is a way for those teams to still get in and have it not feel like it's a thing where the power conferences are getting favored. Because uh, on the face of it, it feels like the point is to outwardly be saying, look at this. We're being so inclusive and, you know, it's going to be so fun and. And it's unfortunate that I, I I feel very cynical about it because it's a weird year. And my kind of feeling has been go ahead and just do as weird as you want to do, because this we this year is already kind of just getting chalked up as just different. So normally I'd be all for just whatever wacky scenario would come up. But aside from the obvious logistical problems and just the daunting amount of. I mean, everything that this would entail, uh, it's. It just doesn't seem right. And I guess my final thing I would say is just if there's a team out there that's never made the NCAA tournament and now it's just everyone blanket is in a full tournament with every division one team. I don't know. It feels like it cheapens it to me. Like if, if I was a fan or a player at that school and you're trying to build towards making that historic moment and just kind of given to you, it just doesn't sit right with me. So what you're saying is you don't want a 2021 NCAA tournament 15th round banner hanging in the sports arena. (laughs) No, I absolutely want that. I mean, if it happens, I will fully embrace the meme that will be this tournament. Oh, my God. Yeah, I I hear everything y'all are saying and like you're making great points. And I, on the surface, agree with everything that you're saying. I am all about this chaos. So bring on this ACC proposal because... This sounds like a two and a half month NCAA tournament, and that just sounds ridiculous. Honestly, in the I, most if, if fun I'm, way possible. If I'm baked potato state, I'm absolutely hanging my hat on making it to the third weekend of the tournament out of nineteen. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Literally, if, that's like a, if you knock off the blue bloods early, then it's just a ridiculous. Could you imagine, oh, could you imagine? knocked out of the tournament in February? Hey, <laughs> no number one seed has ever lost to a three hundred fifty fifth seed. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god but i guess I got another point is i'm confused of how this is gonna like work in time it feels like this is gonna be like a month-long overtaking and i'm 
I'm just talking about the selection show. <laughs> it's going to be like three weeks long. It's going to be a brand new <laughs> channel, 24 hour news network where they just constantly select and bracket in new teams into like the the ultra sub regionals field of 64. <laughs> what an unbearable slog. Oh. That would be so horrible. And watch. I guess this is the other point that seems very ancillary to everything else feels like it's going to be really hard to seed a tournament on not that big of a sample size. I mean, even if you had like a, a hundred game sample size seeding 351 teams or whatever, seems like that'd be an undertaking. But I mean, at that point, you just go by like the Ken like Palm or something like you just yeah, like take I guess one through 350 or whatever. I mean, you know how people feel about taking power out of humans and going to machines in general. So I feel like that's not <laughs> going to go to. I mean, I know it's named Ken Palm after a guy, but there's still a. It's still a computer formula at the end of the day. Or if you just want to get one guy in Indianapolis to just sit there and draw out the bracket. I I do want that live stream. (laughs) Right. Oh, man. And that's how we'll raise money to pay the kids. You Patreon subscribe to this tournament builder working 24 hours a day, seven days a week to build out a 300 person tournament field. (laughs) So I guess in the interest of being a, a college sports podcast we'll keep you updated on what happens with this mega tournament quad tournament (laughs) no no no. that's what they need to call it they don't even need to call it the ncaa tournament just call it mega tournament just (laughs) madness all caps (laughs) (laughs) the big dance with like a bunch more eyes (laughs) the biggest dance oh man No, so, but seriously, like does anyone think this is actually going to happen? I don't think so. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's just crack jokes, but I, I mean, look forward if, to the news cycle. Like, I, I will, I will follow this as, as uninterested as I am in it happening in practice. I'm very interested to interested to see where this goes. I will be following very closely because I'm uh, just every possible permutation of how this could go <laughs> is going to be entertaining, if nothing else. And then, of course, if it actually happens. It'll just be another level of just like, wow, we're really doing this thing, aren't we? Taylor's going to die if that uh, happens. Yeah, you guys, you guys already aren't going to see me in the month of March, but like for real. <laughs> but honestly, yeah, like if you're listening and, you know, we've been joking about it, but I'd be interested to hear what other takes on what a potential alternate you know, approach to doing the tournament in light of the coronavirus pandemic could be. So if you're listening, you know, drop us a drop us a message on Facebook or tweet at us. And I'd be really interested to hear other perspectives on what somebody thinks that a legitimate shot at making a 21 tournament happen could be could could look like. And so that's going to do it for this episode of the Thursday Night Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll get you guys uh, plugged back in on more Georgia State and Sunbelt news as it develops. Uh, Till then. Have a great rest of your day. See ya. See ya. The Thursday Night Podcast is a production of ThursdayNight.com, the independent source of choice for all things Georgia State sports. This podcast and all included sounds are exclusive property of and copyright 2019 Jordan Crawford Enterprises, LLC, on behalf of ThursdayNight.com, unless otherwise specified. The podcast is produced by Programming Director Brady Weiler and Technical Director Jordan Crawford, with assistance from co-hosts Taylor Dynan and David Salmon. 
You can find the podcast on SoundCloud as well as podcast aggregators like Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcast. To submit questions and comments or to request information on advertising and corporate partnerships, contact the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as at Thursday Night or via email at thursdaynight at gmail.com. 